Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing fine. The sun's shining. It always makes things nice. Well, we're in the middle of the hard eight, the last weeks of the holiday season. And this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne and Richard Gottlieb. And we are supported by Global Toy Experts and The Toy Guy. And we're very pleased to welcome a new supporter, Chizcom. For those of you who don't know, Chizcom is a leading 360 PR media and marketing agency specializing in the toy and children's industries that brings innovative solutions to today's dynamic marketplace. Through insight, engagement, and just plain fun, the company brings brands to life in compelling ways in all types of media. As the market's largest purchaser of children's media, Chizcom delivers advertising and media placement strategies that create breakthrough campaigns and achieve record results. We are so glad they're on board, and now it's time for us to have some fun and games. We've got David Norman, who is president of Goliath Games, joining us to talk a little bit about the games business and, of course, this year. How you doing, David? I'm excited to join your podcast. I've loved listening to it and glad to be a small member of your illustrious crew. Oh my gosh. Well, we're pleased to have you. Uh, you do a lot of games that I have had so much fun with. Pop the Pig, Gooey Louie, which is 25 years old this year, believe it or not. It speaks to the enduring appeal of picking one's nose, but <laughs> 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 but, it, but it's great. Why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about your process and how you got to Goliath Games? You will never believe it. You've heard some weird stories. I think I may top the list. Okay. So I was, a, I was an oil salesman. So I sold lubricating oil for Exxon on the West Coast. So I lived in San Francisco. Being a lubrication oil salesman in San Francisco is a story of its own. But um, my job was to um, get this oil and sell it to like truck firms and people like that. And one day they came to me when I started, I said, you know what the big, the big market for you is going to be? And I said, what? And they said, well, it's going to be in fishing boats. That's where our market is. And little trivia, right about the time I started was right after the Valdez spill. So I would be going to get my Exxon oil, going to visit my Alaskan fishermen saying, man, we got the best oil. We got nothing like anything you've ever seen. And for some reason, I wasn't very successful. I actually I actually had a trade show. There's actually, you talk about the toy shows. There's a trade show called Fish Expo. And so it's for fishermen, right? So I, I was a new vendor at Fish Expo. So I was like in the back, right? So the people at the front, they start at, get your settlement money from Exxon. And then they'd weave through the little thing. And then you could get back to me and they're like, where's my check? <laughs> I, was like, oh, I just want to sell some oil. I would just like to say that I have never met anyone who ever was an oil salesman. And it's like meeting someone who was a locomotive engine salesman. <laughs> I just want to be clear. It wasn't snake oil I was selling. Right. It was quality lubrication oil for your tugboat. But anyway, the job wasn't that fun, as you might imagine. It was nice working for him. And I said, look, I want to do something that's fun. They had uh, one of those downsizing things where everybody can take money to leave a company. That's so wonderful, by the way, that they just go to everyone in the marketing department. They're like, hey, do you want to check to leave? I was like, you're really going to pay me to go? And so I took the <laughs> money and I swore I was going to do something fun. And I didn't know what fun was, but I said, you know what fun sounds like? It sounds like toys. So I'm like, well, how do I get a job in the toy industry? I don't know. So what I did was I snuck in to the Stanford Business School. I snuck into the Berkeley Business School and I looked at their job boards. And a guy who's now a friend of mine at University Games named Vince Kerr was listing a job 
for some junior brand manager at University Games. And it basically meant sweeping the floor. And I got rid of my great job at Exxon and took the job sweeping the floor at University Games. I did that for 12 years and eventually became one of their heads of sales. And then after about 12 years, I said, I I think I'm going to start my own company. And I worked it out with them. They had like a six-month transition. And then when I left, like as I'm walking out the door, I get a phone call. And they say, well, what about you join forces with us? And it was with Goliath. And I'd never heard of Goliath. I don't know if you guys had heard of Goliath 12 years ago, but I didn't know him. And I went and I looked at their games. I'm like, I think I can sell these. And so I met Adi Glad, who is the founder of Goliath. I met him at a Astra trade show. And this was kind of my interview trade show all at once. And Adi had, I know this is hard to believe, he had carried on an entire trade show worth of merchandise in his carry-on luggage, like in the stuff he checked and all that. And he didn't pay a dollar, which he reminds me to this day. Whenever I pay like, you know, $50,000 for drage at Toy Fair, he's like, I was able to bring the whole booth for nothing. What's going on? <laughs> so anyway, we um, we started selling his games, Umbrella Exago and Taiyu to specialty. So we started at Astro. We started at Learning Express in July of 2008. We got our first big break when Brandy Field at Calendar Club placed an order for some of our stuff. And we cranked in a solid $160,000 in 2008, which, by the way, what year do you not want to start a company? It's like this year, right? All the problems this year, 2008, last recession. So we started up then. And we the path just kind of kept going from there. And the big thing in, Chris, you were telling me about earlier, was Pop the Pig. Pop the Pig was our big game that kind of broke through the clutter that put us on the map and is still one of our top sellers today. So that's how I got here. Dave, one of the things that always fascinates me is company cultures. When you guys uh, took on Pressman, were there major differences in the cultures and did it take some work to correlate everything? I would say it took the biggest amount of work in my life to figure out how to put all this together. And really not my life, but three people in my company in particular, Missy Anderson, um, Joey Edwards, and Bill Van Yankee, they almost died doing this, pulling this together. So imagine, if you will, Adi and Jim Pressman, who have been lifelong friends, decide, hey, I'm going to sell my company to you. We're going to do it. We're like, good. And David, you know, you and your team figured out. At that time, <laughs> my company had five people. At that time, their company had 43 people. And they had two offices. They had one in New Jersey. They had one in New York. And we went to look at doing it, and we didn't want to keep the offices in New Jersey and New York. And one of the clauses in the sale was that if Jim could sell them and get out of his leases, he didn't have to keep them running because he was on the hook for the leases as part of the deal. Well, about a month later, Jim says, you know, I've gotten out of my lease at both of these locations. So we went to the people at Pressman and we said, hey, who wants to move to Dallas? Guess how many wanted to move to Dallas? Take a guess. None. None is the correct answer. Not a single person wanted to move to Dallas. So we had to figure out a way over the next three or four months to take all the greatness that Pressman did and had and figure out how to move that to our office. And that's systems, that's IT, that's people. Like the salespeople stayed, but their knowledge base and all of that stuff, it was was an amazing thing. So the answer was the culture was fairly different. But because we weren't able to keep it running, we had to really pivot really quickly and just kind of figure out how to get it done. Jumping ahead to 2020, 
This has been a year unlike any we've ever had. It's been a good year for games, though. What's been shaping your year, and and how's your blood pressure? Uh, my blood pressure is terrible. I was <laughs> the Cinepril dosage has gone up a bunch of times, and I guess I guess at least it's going up for something good, you know, which is which is good sales, but obviously bad for the country and bad for the world as we put all that together. So the story of kind of COVID and how it's affected our business works kind of like this. You know, we're a global company, if you don't know much about Goliath, but we've got the office in, in North America, which I represent, but we also have 13 divisions around the world. And actually the lockdown didn't hit everyone the same. So like when France and Spain, I mean, they locked that place down. There were actually signs in the toy stores or in the, in the mass merchants that said, you can buy food, but you can't buy toys. And same thing in Italy. So those market sales went to almost nothing. When the U.S., when it hit, sales took off. I mean, I think it was the week of March 14th or March 7th, ending March 14th. You get your sell-through at the end of that week. And sell-through had gone up by about a factor of four. So four times what it's normally like. The phones were ringing. Everybody wanted inventory. And obviously, you had not planned for this kind of Russian sales. So it's been an amazing logistical story that's not over. It's now November 2nd as we're talking, but that story is not over. I mean, we're still rushing to get product and try to fulfill demand. So it's been crazy in that regard. I just saw this morning where there's huge backups at the Panama Canal. They're trying to fit so many ships through. And this in general, there's a shortage of containers. There's a shortage of container ships. What does it look like? Not just for Goliath right now, but, but in general, what are you seeing? Yeah, I can give you the sense. So what you do for containers is you negotiate the price in the early part of the year. And you say, I think I'm going to sell X number of containers. And they say, okay, the price for X number of containers is this. Well, if you want to do X plus one, that one is at the spot price. So the spot price for containers is more than double the price I negotiated. So if you want that extra container, you're going to pay twice. But you can't necessarily get it. Like the boats are full. They don't have room for your stuff. So your stuff can get rolled and rolled and rolled. So that's problem number one, getting it on the boat. Once you get it on the boat, you got other problems. You're storing the Panama Canal is actually correct completely. You're getting stuck going in there. Even if you get on a boat and get it across the sea, the port can't handle all the business. I think what's going on is the money that was originally going to like movie theaters and sporting events and things like that have gone to the mass merchants. You know, every time you walk by a Walmart, a Target, a Costco, their parking lots are pretty full. And so that means they've got to have more goods going in. And there's just less resiliency in our distribution system. Even getting the goods from your warehouse to the retailer is a challenge. How is it looking for Goliath? Because a lot of the stuff had to be landed, of course, earlier on in the year before a lot of these bottlenecks happened. But but how are you positioned for this year? So sales will obviously be up because demand continues to be up throughout the year. But we've definitely, I would say, lost a bit of sales, too, because there's been a lot of orders we haven't been able to fulfill. And I actually think there's going to be some shortages this year across the market. It all comes down to, I think, the whole toy season is going to be decided in the next two weeks by the following thing, which is, do the manufacturers have enough to ship right now? And do the retailers have the desire to order those goods? You know, there's a lot of gnashing of teeth with COVID, and obviously COVID's on the increase in terms of number of cases. Will people feel comfortable going to the stores? Will Black Friday be a thing? Will December be as busy? 
and no one really knows. And it's kind of a cat and mouse game to see how it turns out. I personally think the sales through December are going to be robust. I mean, for the games market, every week since that week ending March 14th, sales have been up. And I just, I can't imagine that turning off in December, but I guess time will tell. It's a toy business, right? You never know. You, you never know. We've seen challenges around the world right now. You're in 75 countries and we've got Wales and Ireland in shutdowns. Germany just announced that they're going to shut down. And so stores, non-essential stores are shut until the beginning of December. Do you think that's going to just propel the season to be bigger, later, faster? I think in Europe, it's going to be a different scenario. A couple of things I think are happening. One is online is going to continue to win, right? Because if the stores shut down, online continues. And you guys probably recall, there's a period in the spring where, you know, Amazon said, look, we can't take any more toys into our DCs. We're too full. So who knows if that's going to happen again? But I think I think in Europe, as these markets really tightly shut down, it's going to really kind of decrease the ability for people to sell. And it'll be a question of how much the online can pick up. And then different markets online is different, right? Like, you know, Australia, it's a small percentage, whereas in the UK, it's really, really big. So I think a lot of that will vary by market. David, I think we all had different experiences when we first began to realize there really was a pandemic. Uh, can you tell us kind of what you went through when uh, the pandemic hit? One of the backgrounds of Goliath as it was founded by Adi is it's a family company. And we really value our products, but we value our employees too. And we're just one big family. And so the number one goal we had on our mind was how do we keep everybody's jobs? Like at the time when this first hit, we didn't know if the economy was just going to go straight to the dumpster or if it was going to take off and be good. So we were immediately like, how do we do it? And the team, our IT team was incredible. They got us, we were working Microsoft Teams. I know some people are Zoom, whatever, but we were able to get everybody home, which we sent them home like over a two day period and get them up and working by the next Monday. And we didn't have any layoffs because of it, which was kind of our our main goal was to take care of our people. Because obviously this business is people first, then product second. And we were very fortunate to be able to have that work out. I have been stating that I think the only uh, kind of fly in the ointment for the toy industry could be the uh, the release of the new Sony PlayStation and the Microsoft uh, Xbox. And historically, these tend to cannibalize uh, toy sales because dad thinks it's a family purchase. Do you guys have any thoughts around that? Well, I'll tell you two things. One is I have kids who are 20 and 24, and they have let me know that it's a family purchase. And they've explained to me that the family isn't all together, so we need multiple ones of them. So, <laughs> So, my kids, they are better salesmen than me, but um, they are, they, they're definitely going to take their bite. But I, I think the toy industry, just as it's been a little bit kind of counter seasonal to, or counter against the economy, I think it's going to be able to really maintain this year. Have you seen differences in what types of games have been in demand? Yes, definitely. So I, I view it as like a couple different categories have done really well. There are these games that I kind of equate to comfort food. The games kind of everybody knows and comes in. And, you know, Hasbro has a lot of those titles, the Monopolies of the World, Mattel has Uno, you know, Sorry, things like that. I think the basic ones that you really know that you want to play with your family, I think those have really grown. 
For us, we have Sequence and Rummy Cube as part of our portfolio, and those two have blasted off. You know, they're very popular games. They've been around 40 years. People know them. You're, you've got more family time. You're going out. You're not seeing the sporting event. You're not going to the movie. So you want to play games. So those have done well. And then I think, I think things in the adult segment have done pretty well too. You know, strategy games, party games in that area as well. Speaking specifically, though, of Goliath, you're the kings of the sort of silly skill and action game. We mentioned Pop the Pig. We've got Doggy Doo. We've got Googly Eyes. We've got all of these games that are so, so much fun, but they don't require any special skill. They really encourage people to laugh. What do you look for when you are thinking to acquire a game into your portfolio? What are the criteria that it has to meet? So in that particular area, it just overwhelms with fun wins. You know, I've heard some people on your thing say the wow of toys or whatever. Like, you know it when you present it to kids and when you present it to adults. It just has this wow that blows you away. One of our um, new launches this year is a game called Rattlesnake Jake. And <laughs> basically, Rattlesnake Jake is a, is a thief and he's gone to the bank and he's stolen all the gold. And you guys are the sheriffs and you've got to rescue that gold from the rattlesnake. And he's all coiled up and he's got his gold in there. And when you get close to it, his rattle starts rattling. And when you get it, you know, obviously you're trying to avoid that jump scare of the snake jumping and coming right at you. And that particular action or is so amazing when it happens that kids love it, both from our consumer insight test and from our, you know, everything else we've been able to do. So I think you just have to have that fun and that big action that's just a little bit over the top. You know, Doggy Doo is a great example. Like Doggy Doo, the story of Doggy Doo is we got it from an inventor called Bruce Lund, and he'd shown it to every major toy executive that he could find, and no one wanted it. And our founder, Adi Glad, went to his office. He's like, I've seen all the stuff you want to show me, but where's the stuff you don't want to show me? Like, where's the back closet that I can dig in and find stuff? And this thing came out. And it was kind of so over the top. You know, it makes really loud farting sounds as it goes out and it poops at the end. And it being that over the top is what made it happen. And it's also what made it a PR sensation. I think that thing has 500 million views on YouTube <laughs> in different forms. And it's just, it's so over the top. So I think you always have to look for that big action. That, that was really a pioneer, I guess, in kind of gross out games and gross out play. So what is the state of gross out play right now? Is that still a hot trend or is, if, has that kind of gotten to a point where people aren't so grossed out anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to a point where people aren't grossed out. I think gross <laughs> continues. And I'll tell you something interesting about gross that you might not expect. Girls like gross as much as guys like gross. You would think that gross would be a boy trend, but it's really not. When we go down and we look at the consumers who buy our stuff for the kids, it's almost 50-50 girl boy on these things that you would think of as being gross, like Gooey Louie, where you pull the booger, or <laughs> Doggy Doo, where he poops. Or we have a new game this year called Burping Bobby. And basically, <laughs> you, feed, you feed this big old hippo, and you feed him food that stinks, right? And you keep feeding him, feeding him, feeding him, and it kind of goes like this. And then eventually, he lets out a mega... <laughs> And green gas comes out. And that game is doing great. 
and it's doing great with both boys and girls. And the, and that's the point. It really is what I like to call a loud naughtiness because kids know that it's inappropriate to burp and fart and all of that stuff, but they do think at a certain age that any bodily function is both embarrassing and hilarious. We're always thinking about how to market these things. How do we tell our story to the consumer? How do we break through the clutter? And you know, our products are really targeted towards kids. And we said, what if we do a campaign targeting adults? And we make this the white elephant gift kind of thing. Like, you know, if you have somebody really uptight, do you want to give them gooey Louie? You know, do you want to give them pop the pig? And that mom's all up there and you're like, let's just bring it and see what happens. So we actually had a pretty good run with that when we launched it. That's so creative. I I love that idea. And I wanted to shift gears and ask you a little bit about marketing because games are often driven by word of mouth. It's expensive to be on TV. What are you finding are the effective strategies for you guys as you start to promote your games? So it's interesting. And I was listening to some of your other podcasts as people talking about what they did with their toys. And they explained the days of used to put it on TV and then you would know within a week or two if you had a hit or not a hit. Um, and for me, I guess I've only been with Goliath about 12 years. So even then, TV was starting to fade a little bit. So the things I'll tell you is I can tell you a lot of things that have worked. And I'll also tell you next month it might be different. But TV, TV's certainly been effective. Um, influencers has been effective. And the gen cons of the world that aren't happening is a big loss. So a lot of that's transferring to video now. You know, what you couldn't do in person, you now have to make a good video. And that video is becoming more and more important, both to sell it into the retailer to explain the story, because it's hard to generate all that passion that you need on Zoom. So you've got to have something for them to see and then also to sell it through, you know, where people can understand it or see a cool little video of what it is as you advertise. So you definitely have the digital component growing. I think the other thing that's happening is, is that there's a lot more advertising to do with the retailers, like with Walmart and Target and Amazon, you used to want to advertise in store. And you probably still want to do some of that, but now you've got to figure out how to do it online. Now, Walmart, Target, Amazon, they have 10,000 games you can choose from. How do you get yours to show up near the top at a rate you can afford? And that's almost like TV advertising online with the Amazon, Walmart, Target's really expensive too. I wanted to ask you a little bit about user-generated content because that's been something that's been effective in games. I mean, certainly sort of the iconic story is Pie Face. It was sort of languishing, and then this kid with his grandfather did a video, and that went viral. Are you leveraging that? Are you finding that that's a factor in helping get the word out on your games? It's a great thing to do. It's just so hard to execute. I always talk to our video team, and they're like, David, if I could make a viral video, they'd all be viral videos. <laughs> Whether I did it or we asked Johnny to go do it, if we know Johnny can make that pie face video, we'd send a case to Johnny. We'd send to Hawaii to do it, whatever it took. So it's definitely effective, but it's no easy process. And there's no formula to get it. So we definitely send a lot of our samples out to try to accomplish that. We try to come up with story ideas that might work. But it seems like the things that are really successful in doing that kind of randomly happen. We had, a, we had a video just sent to us last week that we're going to put out from this grandmother who we gave a Rummy Cube game to. And she's so excited about getting this new deluxe Rummy Cube. I mean, you know, the three-year-old or four-year-old where they're opening the present, like we have, and we're like, I want Bob the Pig. I want it so bad. It's my favorite. Yay. This grandmother was every bit that three and four-year-old getting Rummy Cube. 
And so in that content, we sent, we didn't send it expecting this video. They just made it and sent it. And I think that type of content tells a story better than any TV commercial I could. I think the issue with that is authenticity. And we've seen that how effective that is. And now Instagram put a shop button on and TikTok's just done a deal with Shopify. So my concern standing at the privilege of 10,000 feet is how do you maintain that authenticity that's so compelling versus manufactured commercials by influencers? I think that's a great question. So, you know, if you think of influencers in the early days when they were picking up, I guess this would be maybe 2014, 2015, they were doing it out of love, right? I really like this. I want to play with it. And their videos, at least in my opinion, were more effective. Like when it felt real and love and all of that stuff, and I'm so excited, that had a bigger effect on my sales than anything I could pay for today. So the trick is now you can't do that. You've got to get your products out there to those people who have that spark and do it. But I don't think just because it's so cool that it's so authentic, I think you can't create it either. Uh, you know, Chris just mentioned TikTok. Are, are you doing anything with TikTok? And if you are, can you give us any sense of how do you approach that as opposed to YouTube? Yes. So TikTok's very interesting, right? I mean, it's the hot thing. All these people are using it. So, But it's harder to do. There's not like many TikTok agents who are like, hey, I've got this person on TikTok. Let's do a deal. Um, so we tried a bunch of stuff. The first thing we do is we opened a channel. We made a lot of TikTok videos. And we just said, can we make TikTok videos that people like? What do you think? Were we successful? No. Um, <laughs> like we had a couple that had maybe a million views, but it wasn't anything to like, it wasn't like this super sensation. So that was like, yeah. Then we found people who had followings and we went to them and we said, hey, what do you think? You know, you guys complete creative control. Here's the samples, do it. And those are actually much more effective. So I think the strategy for TikTok is you have to find the people who fit your brand, I guess. Like your all of our brands have their own little voice. And when you have people who speak with that voice who have your product and they do something as crazy as they want with no guidance from you, I think that's the best. YouTube, I think, is a little bit different. I think YouTube, you've got your super influencers who are really, really popular and have a really big reach. And then you've got kind of the mid-tier and you've got everybody else. And so for them, like if you have a big launch, I think you have to think about, all right, I'm launching this big. It's going to be globally. Who's maybe the best person I can form a partnership with to do it? Whereas I think TikTok might be, let's try to find those people with your voices and just send it to them. So it's maybe a little less strategic and a little more organic. So, David, we're going to ask you the question that we're going to start asking everybody. You're the first. Tell us a secret. (laughs) There's a secret I've never told anyone. And so this will be my moment. And it's from a few years ago. But I told you that Pop the Pig was our big hit, right? And we launched the company. We're going to make Pop the Pig the thing. And we went up there and we're going to we got our containers, our first containers. Everything was fine, right? We got the next shipment and we went to look at it and say, is everything good? And it didn't work well enough. So I had 25,000 pieces, which was every penny me and Adi had put into this thing to start it. And we had those 25,000 pop the pigs that didn't work well enough. And we'd already spent the money for the TV and we had to decide what to do. And this was 2009. 
bankers weren't happy and we decided not to ship them. So we left the, we left the industry, you know, it's shorter than 25,000, but we left it really, really short and didn't really do it. And it took us close to in the US financial collapse. Like when you're, this was like everything, right? We'd add the money in there. The company was really small. And we just made that call that we thought this item might be, you know, the big one that makes everything happen. We weren't going to send one out wrong. So our secret is that we never told anyone. We just said it was a, a shortage of over forecast or whatever that was. We didn't have it. But the truth is we didn't have product that worked until the next year. And we decided not to ship it. I think that's not only is that a, a wonderful secret, but I think it's a, a it's a wonderful uh, teaching moment. I, I think that the very courageous thing you did. It was also a very brilliant. If you had put those into the market, you would have killed that brand. But it's very frightening from a financial standpoint. So I really applaud you and Adi for doing what's right. Well, we're sitting there and it was like, it's one of those, it was a gray area, right? It wasn't, it worked, the product worked, but it didn't work well enough for a four-year-old to love it. I think that experience has actually helped us in the rest of our product development. It's a great secret and it speaks very highly of you as a company and your commitment to your consumers. And I would just like to say that, you know, I once heard a speaker on business ethics and he said, if good business and good ethics were totally aligned, there would be no concept of business ethics. <laughs> so what you were doing was the right thing to do. It wasn't necessarily, you had to hold your breath, wasn't necessarily, you didn't know, was it the right business thing to do? So thank God it worked out and you're sitting here with us today. As you put a little Windex on your crystal ball, what are you seeing coming in 2021 in terms of trade shows, in terms of product, in terms of the industry overall? Well, it's funny. I do have a crystal ball and I keep it um, I keep it a couple doors down. So and I do I do check that thing often to see to see what's going on. I can I can tell you the way we're planning out our business to go into 21 and we're continuing planning for good demand for games. That's the first one. We think it's going to continue to be strong, whether the virus gets stronger, weaker, or whatever. We think that all these people playing games has kind of rekindled the imagination for games. And we think people are going to want to keep playing them, even if there's other options for entertainment. We don't think people are going to get tired of them. So I, I think that's the biggest one in terms of our forecasting as a company. I think that in terms of the other disruptions in the industry, I, I don't really have any idea, but I think that that's going to be big. And then I think within the game space, there's going to be a, a bigger and bigger desire to be more digital and be more 360 in what you do. So if you have a popular game, are you going to have a popular app? Is your app going to be just good enough or is it going to be great? And we are going to try to make fewer things great than a lot of things average on the app side. But I really think it's going to continue to go that way. And then the challenge for us will be, how do you monetize that? You know, are you going to sell it for 99 cents? Are you going to give it away and you can get, you know, an extra sequence colored tile if you, if you do this? We don't really know, but we're working on that. So in addition to your skill in action games, you've had a lot of success with Sequence and Rummy Cube and Excited Grandmothers. Uh, how are you going to expand upon that to keep the grandmothers excited? That's a great question. So the reason that grandmother was excited was that she was getting a very upscaled version of the game. And her story was she played Rummy Cube every day for years and years and years. And so 
what we've decided is that these super fans, we've got to really cultivate them because they're the people teaching everyone about our games and how to do it. So you'll actually see if you go to Amazon now that we've got new upscale versions of them in the marketplace. So we made this game that I love called Rummy Cubonics. And it's Rummy Cube with like really slick black tiles. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. And we've made a luxury edition of, of Sequence. And both of those games are doing great. Um, just today, the Onyx game was, I think, the number one new item in Dom. I guess it's in the Domino category or something like that. And the Sequence one is doing great too. So I think the big thing for these brands that people have started playing and really, really like is to now get them to trade up into a higher end model of one of them. That's really brilliant, actually. And it's identifying a market niche, really serving that and doing something that I'm going to guess is pretty high margin and very good for your company. (laughs) You're a good guesser. (laughs) David Norman, president of Goliath Games, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's really impressive what you've done, and we are so looking forward to the future. Thank you again. Enjoyed it, David. Thank you. I appreciate the chance to be on. Thank you guys very much. And now we come to the part of the program that we call the end cap, where Richard and I sit around and throw about some ideas about what's going on in the world based on what we're reading and seeing and hearing. And today we're talking about the toy business overseas. England and Wales have just gone into shutdowns. There was a big surge of shopping in the UK before the shutdown began. And there's a lot going on around the world. Richard, what are you thinking? I really do want to say that for all of us, uh, not just in the toy industry, but the world, this is a time of dislocation and really a sense of being out of balance. We have an election going on that, that at this point still has not been totally finalized. Uh, we've got Brexit taking place, which is very big for Europe. We have a lot of, of things happening in Hong Kong and in that greater Bay Area there in China. And we have coronavirus. <laughs> So these are highly destabilizing. But what fascinates me is the resilience of business people and and toy business people in particular for today's discussion in terms of really working their way through a lot of upheaval, which may not actually be upheaval. It just may appear because a lot of it's emotional. Right. Sickness is emotional. Right. You know, politics can be very emotional. And in the case of China, even geography can be emotional. There is a lot going on. And one of the things that does encourage me about the toy industry, and many industries, in fact, is the nature of being able to respond quickly to a dynamic environment. That's not new in the toy business. It's just that we get complacent. We think if something's gone on for two or three years, it's always been that way, which is which is which is not the case. And I think that this year has been a perfect storm of so many things happening all at once. But, but I do think uh, in some places, Chris, it, it, the upheaval is a little more. Let's take uh, the U.K., they're dealing with a resurgence of coronavirus, which has led to lockdowns. When you take that on top of Brexit, I think that uh, the UK, and God knows there will always be in England, uh, but I think they're up, they're into some years for struggle. I, I really do. I think that the store closings are just the tip of the iceberg of what's going to happen when they really have to come to grips. Uh, with a new trading relationships, not just with Europe, but the world. And at the same time, there's still going to be kids who are going to be somewhat 
isolated from all of that or sequestered from all of that who are still going to want toys and parents who are going to still try to get them. I did see a study recently that was talking about parents are okay with shopping for toys online, but the experience of being in a store is something that they are eager to get back to, which is why these lockdowns in the UK have caused so much upset right now or so much last minute buying just to get that experience before they're shut down because it's going to be shut down until December 2nd, which is going to leave just about three weeks of stores open if they open to make that holiday shopping season if Christmas is your holiday. And our friend John Balch, uh, who publishes Toy World magazine, uh, just talked this morning on his Friday blog uh, about the fact that the toy stores reported a surge of business prior to the lockdown. Uh, One retailer, I think, reported a 400% increase in sales. So you're absolutely right. People do want to go to the store. They do want to see product. When this is all over, and it will be over, (laughs) uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the landscape looks like. And we're seeing landscape changing as well in in Asia. You and I have talked about potential transitions for Hong Kong, potential changes, and really what's going to happen in the Shenzhen area. And you were telling me before we started recording about something you were reading about people supporting some of the move into Shenzhen. Not to, not to obliterate Hong Kong and not to invalidate the role of Hong Kong in the toy industry, but simply to amplify the Shenzhen region. Just for folks who aren't as aware of the area geographically, Hong Kong is on the coast. It's on an island, but it also on the mainland as well. When you cross into China from Hong Kong, you come into a city called Shenzhen, which probably 30 years ago was a village. And today is just an enormous city as it's really the manufacturing heart for the toy industry and, and a lot of other consumer product industries. And so it evolved that Hong Kong, which uh, probably in the 70s was a manufacturing center where toys became a banking and and really headquarters, an executive white collar center for the toy industry. Chinese government had recently took a much stronger hand in Hong Kong. There has been some democratic institutions which are being challenged right now by the Chinese government. And yes, there are Hong Kongers who, who are not happy about this. On the other hand, China wants to make the Hong Kong Shenzhen area into, I believe it's called like the Greater Bay Area, into an enormous economic zone. And that Hong Kongers think that may be a really good idea, Chris. And I'll tell you one reason I think why. And I haven't seen this written about, but Shanghai historically, which is not part of this zone, but is on the coast, is a always been China's real... Uh, linked to the globe and in a banking center. And so Hong Kong used to be nothing compared to Shanghai until really the communists took over and Britain really turned Hong Kong into an economic center. So I think possibly Hong Kong's more concerned about Shanghai than they are about Shenzhen. So this works to Hong Kong's advantage. I do know that the first time I went to Shenzhen, it was a little more than a village, but it was not very big. And it's got more than 12 million people in it now. And that's that's a growth. So that's in about 25 years. And I do think that as I talk to toy manufacturers, they hop back and forth from Hong Kong to Shenzhen, just as if they were commuting from New York to Philadelphia. And it really is part of a whole infrastructure that is potentially part of the unification of Hong Kong 
and Shenzhen and the more integration of Hong Kong into, into China. This is a huge, huge area. And uh, you can see why, if you were to put these two areas together, this would be uh, quite a dynamic economic zone. And, and it's funny to add that some of my Hong Kong friends go to Shenzhen to do their shopping, just as you and I might go to Costco or <laughs> in order to, because they, they save a lot of money and they go on the train and come back and make a day of it. This is an emotional issue for some people, but from an economic standpoint, which is what we're talking about today, from a population standpoint, this is reality. And I really do think that we may see a merger of this population area into the megaplex of all megaplexes. Right. Chris, I think that what we take away from all this is you can't go to sleep. You have to stay up on what's happening all the time. And I know that you and I do. So we're going to do our best to keep on up on what's going on around the world and keep all of you out there posted. And we certainly enjoy talking about this industry. We appreciate you listening. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb, and we are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Chizcom. We will see you next time.